Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. Uh, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're going back to our study that we just began recently in the book of Revelation. And you might know Revelation chapters 2 and 3 contain what are called, you know, often referred to as the Christ's seven letters to the seven churches. And I think, uh, I don't want to spend too much time, I don't want this to be a lecture, I want it to be a sermon, but I think there's a couple things at least that we need to to have in mind and consider as we go through these, uh, especially this section of of the book, and as we go through these letters individually from Sunday to Sunday. The first thing is that, uh, we should note that there is a structure, if you haven't read these letters, maybe read through them this afternoon, uh, there's a structure, a clear structure to these seven letters. As you read them, if you haven't already read them, you'll notice the same kinds of things are said in each one. They're very short, uh, but they contain a lot of, of truth, a lot of things for us to unpack and learn from. Uh, they're not the same. Each letter doesn't sound exactly the same. It's not a form letter, you know, where you, you know, copy and paste. Jesus didn't copy and paste of these letters, but they, they each start out with an opening greeting, much like Paul's letters, but it's much, much shorter. An opening greeting there that identifies the recipients, at least the initial recipients of those letters, which are the various churches in Asia, which we saw back in chapter one. Uh, each letter is actually addressed, quote, to the angel of the church in so and so, Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, all these churches. Now, those angels or messengers are commonly, most commonly understood as referring to the ministers of the churches. Now, that doesn't mean each church had one pastor. They might have had multiple pastors, and this is, is intended normally or, or thought to be referring to the uh, messengers or the pastors, the ministers of those churches. The ministers are representatives of those churches. And so all the members of those churches are also being addressed in the letters so that the, the bad news is this is also addressed to you and not just to me. So you don't get to say, oh, it's just to the pastor. The pastor has to do all the uh, looking at this stuff and, and doing it. Um, it's also addressed to everyone. It's just addressed through, in a sense, the pastor of the church, who's probably the one who's going to read these letters and this book to the congregation when they got it. In each one of these short seven letters, the exalted Christ, the Lord himself, identifies himself as the speaker. The speaker's not John. John is the, is, this is take a memo, John. And John's writing down the words that Christ gives him to say. Now you might notice that Jesus gives a brief description of himself 
in each one of these opening uh, greetings of these seven letters, and in most cases what he does is he takes the language, the, the visual, so to speak, that we saw in chapter 1. Remember that vision of John, of Christ that John had in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 16? Well, Jesus takes snippets, so to speak, of that description and kind of plugs them into these letters to remind them of this vision of John. That he's still, the same one from that vision is the same one who addresses his churches. It wasn't just for John's benefit. For example, in the one that we're looking at in chapter 2 here, the letter to Ephesus in verse 1, our Lord describes himself, quote, as him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you remember, that's exactly how John described the vision of Christ back in chapter 1. The next thing you're going to see in each letter is the exalted Christ tells each church something that's kind of remarkable, that he knows their works. He knows their situations. He knows their strengths, their shortcomings, their successes and failures. He know if each letter says this, I know such and such about you. He's intimately acquainted with all the things uh, that went on with these churches, the things they went through, the things they were doing, their labors, their endurance. And I think this is intended and should be very comforting to us as a church. It's meant to comfort his church. It's evidence that the Lord really does walk among the lampstands. Remember, what were the lampstands in, intended to convey? What, what did the lampstands symbolize? The churches, right? So, you know, it's easy to read, though, he's walking among the lampstands. He's really walking among the lampstands. He's with his church. What does he say at the end of the Great Commission? He's with, I'll be with you, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Those aren't just words. He's with his church. He knows everything about what we do, what his churches do, and he always will. Now, this intimate knowledge of our works, struggles, conflicts, successes, and shortcomings is comforting, but it should also be convicting as well. His presence among us should be convicting as well. He knows our works, whether good or bad, whether pleasing to him or not. And so as you're going to see, as you go through these letters, you're going to see that he both commends his churches and praises them for their faithfulness to his name. But other times he also corrects and rebukes them, doesn't he? There's some pretty stern words in this letter about about leaving their first love. He tells the Laodiceans, I believe it was, that they're so lukewarm he's going to spit them out of his mouth. Those are hard words to hear. He corrects and in fact, in this letter to the to the church at Ephesus, he does both of those things, doesn't he? He praises them, and and he has words of of correction and rebuke to them. Each of these letters also contains a promise of eternal and heavenly blessing to those. It says to the one who conquers. That's a phrase you'll see in all seven letters. To the one who conquers, you know. Probably not a single one of those churches in Asia at the time felt like they were conquering much of anything. They probably felt like they were playing defense. They were just happy to still be around some of the persecutions and things that they were facing from their pagan neighbors, even the government that was over them. But he says to the one who conquers, he'll give this, he promises these different blessings. You could say that that call to the one to conquer as well as the call to endure, is kind of the primary exhortation throughout the entire book. The book is a call to God's people, to God, to Christ's churches, to conquer and endure. And he promises his help in doing that. He promises that we will conquer in him, and he promises many blessings to us in, in doing that. 
Finally, after the Lord's various calls to his churches to endurance and faithfulness and repentance and even to conquering, each letter uh, repeats this refrain. All seven letters have these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does that mean? Why does he repeat that seven times? that, that, That little thing there is to tell us that these letters apply to every church. He doesn't say, he who has an ear... Uh, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church in Ephesus, so the rest of us can disregard it. He says, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, says to the churches, plural. In other words, all the churches, not just the seven that that are mentioned here in, in the first century, but every Christian church down through the ages until Christ returns is to have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to us here in this book and in these individual letters. And that brings us to the second thing I, I hope that we will take the time to notice, that the seven churches, uh, the seven churches in John's day, they were real churches. These weren't make-believe churches. These weren't make-believe cities. They weren't make-believe uh, churches. They're real churches dealing with the, really dealing with the things that Jesus talks about here in the letter. But that being the case, while he does address those things, these things are also meant to address all the churches in all places in all times, those seven churches collectively represent and signify all Christian churches in every place throughout all of history. And so they're meant, they're meant for our edification and instruction. Every church, and really in some sense every believer, should see kind of shades of ourselves as we read these seven churches, these letters to the churches. We should, we should look at them and say, is this us? Is, is, is this something... Are we something like that? You might find yourself, we might find ourselves saying something like that about all seven. We don't like to be like the church in Philadelphia with no rebuke and all praise, but there might be a little bit of of all these things found in, in each of us and even in this church. So these letters, these seven letters to the seven churches, were written for our instruction, for your instruction and mine and for our edification. And so as we read them, you know, Bible study in general has this temptation to it. Uh, maybe you've seen this in your own heart, in your own life, but uh, sometimes we tend to read the Bible, and especially things like this, or, or, or Old Testament history, you know, things like that. We kind of read them like we're at the museum. Like we're, we're looking at something under glass that's very interesting. You know, it's, it's nice to see, it's nice to know, but it's almost trivial. It really doesn't apply to us. Well, this is not something to look at as if it were under glass for our amusement or, or, or just curiosity, we, we should be diligent to ask what it is that you and I are to learn from this these letters. These letters are every bit as relevant to us in the church today as they ever were to the original seven churches to which Jesus first addressed them. And so we, you and I need to strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to emulate the things uh, for which our Lord commends these churches, when we see him praise them for something, we should say, that's something we should be like as a church. And if we aren't, we need to repent and turn and, and be, be like that more ourselves. Likewise, we should be careful to take heed to the rebukes and the calls to repentance we find in these letters to some of the churches. We must be willing to take a hard look in the mirror as individual believers and as a church and be willing to be corrected by the Lord for our shortcomings and failures, just as we're willing, obviously, to be comforted by his words of commendation and praise. We have to be willing to take to heart both the warnings and promises he gives 
to the churches in these letters because they are intended for us as well. That those promises to the one who conquers wasn't just for them. That's for you and me as well. That's for the church in all places in all ages. So today we're going to look at the letter to the church in Ephesus in verses 1 through 7. The first letter is addressed to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus, verse 1. Now, you know, the church in Ephesus had a lot going for it. I think Pastor Gary a while back mentioned some of these very things when he preached in Acts chapter 20 to us in that farewell address from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders. Uh, the Apostle Paul planted the church. I mean, if you're going to have a church planter, if you could pick me or Paul, you pick Paul 100 times out of out of 10. You know, uh, Paul Paul planted their church. That's That's a pretty good start. He planted that church back in Acts chapter 9. We're told there that Paul ministered there, quote, for two years. Now, I've been here seven. Two doesn't sound like long to me, but to them it probably did. Two years, and what was the result? It says in verse 10 of Acts 19, so that all the residents of Asia, that's where all these churches were in the letters, right? All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a church. That church was a missionary church. That church got the word out. This was a great church that God had, that Christ had started through the Apostle Paul, through the preaching, the power of the preaching of the word of God. Imagine sitting under the preaching and teaching of the Apostle Paul for two years. He he had no electricity. He had no microphone, no anything, uh, no lights. Uh, In fact, sometimes people fell out windows when he preached too long. But, But they had the Apostle Paul preaching and teaching to them. Not only that, but, you know, after those two years, Paul left. And what happened He left Timothy there, his protege pastor, his son in the faith. So Timothy, someone who had been taught directly by Paul, left there to continue things just the way that Paul had had them going. He was left to minister there and establish the church there and and appoint elders and deacons in those places. And as if that weren't enough, it's also believed that the Apostle John, the writer of Revelation, also taught and ministered at at the church at Ephesus. Sounds like a church you'd want to be at even with all the hardships. So, so Paul and Timothy and John himself ministered there in Ephesus. That sounds pretty good. Sounds like a church that probably, you know, definitely got off on the right foot. Some churches don't. This one did. Sounds like a church that was well-established. You know, you might be forgiven for thinking, this place must have been like a well-oiled machine. Just flip the switch and it's going to go. The Energizer Bunny, it's just going to keep on going perfect forever and ever. And yet we know that wasn't the case. They, they were rebuked even during John's day for things they had to repent. No church, no matter how successful, no matter how faithful and useful to Christ in the past, no matter how diligent she is in matters of doctrine and moral purity, can rest on her laurels or presume that all will remain well with her just because things have been well with her in the past. We don't get the coast There's no coasting in the kingdom. There's no coasting for the church militant. In fact, the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian elders of that very thing in that address to them, his farewell address in Acts chapter 20. He tells them to be on your guard, to watch for for wolves in sheep's clothing coming in to, to tear the flock. If you can be, forgive me for quoting a political person in church, uh, you might, you might know this quote, Ronald Reagan, our former president, is quoted as saying this. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on, uh, pass it to our children in the bloodstream. 
It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same, or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children uh, what it was once like in the United States where men were free. It doesn't just happen. The, the, you know, Nationally speaking, the freedoms that we enjoy even right now didn't just happen. They were fought for. Well, they still have to be fought for. Well, in a, in a greater sense, in a more important sense, the same kind of thing is true of every church. Of every church. In, in some ways, that's what our Lord's letter to the church in Ephesus is telling us today, I believe. A church's light and testimony to Christ is never more than one generation away from being extinguished. It too must be, if I can use President Reagan's words, it must be fought for, protected, and handed on to them for them to do the same. May our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, give us grace to be a church that does just that. Well, the first thing we see in the letter, let's try to unpack a little bit of the actual letter in our text itself. The first thing you see here after Christ's description of himself that we already looked at about uh, holding the stars in his hands and, and walking among the lampstands is his words of commendation. He has a lot of praise and comment, kind words, commendation he gives to the church at Ephesus. In verses 2 to 3, look there, he says, I know your works. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And that's that's got to be comforting to them and to every church that emulates them and resembles them. He knew firsthand, he knew intimately their works. And he uses the word toil. He knew their toil, their labors, and they worked hard. And Jesus acknowledged it, and he praised them for it. He praised them for their patient enduring of hardship and persecution for his name's sake. He knew they didn't tolerate evil in their midst, and also that they tested those who had claimed to be apostles and were not. You know, people are always putting themselves forward as, as teachers. Even in our day, they might not claim to be apostles, although some do. People still try that. You know, they do it in subtle ways. God told me. Well, if, if, if a pastor ever in this pulpit or somewhere else tells you, God told me, and the next words they say aren't in the book of such and such, uh, get a new pastor. Go, go somewhere else. We, you still have to not, you still have to sniff those people out. It's, a, it's the same thing that they had to deal with, we're going to have to deal with in our day as well. He knew, Christ tells them, that they had rejected those who claimed to be apostles and yet were not. He also says that he knew uh, that in all these things they had not grown weary. I mean, you get tired after a while. You get worn down after constantly working and being on the defensive, being uh, in the good fight uh, of the faith. And he tells them, I know you haven't, you haven't worn out yet. You're still hanging in there. You're still working. You're still testing all things. You're still rejecting false doctrine and immorality in your ranks. Now, this in many ways, if you think about this description in verses 2 to 3, I think... When I was first reading it, I thought, wow. And if you stopped at verse 3, which you can't do, but if you stopped at verse 3, it's like, that sounds like an awesome church. That sounds like the church you want to go to. That's a place where you want to hang your, your hat. You know, frankly, if you think about it, many churches in our own day fail, fail miserably in comparison. 
They don't begin to resemble these good things that Jesus commends. They tolerate all kinds of false doctrine. They teach it. They tolerate all kinds of immorality in their ranks and teachings, false teachings that lead to those sins as if it were nothing. Not this church. This church was a church that faithfully watched over their doctrine. They did not tolerate false teaching. They rejected immorality and licentiousness. Many in our day do not do that. They endured hardship for it. How many of you know that's that happens? When you take a stand for the truth, both in doctrine and in, in how you live, what pleases God, there's a price that sometimes is have, has to be paid. They even hated the false teaching that Jesus hated. Think about that. You know, Jesus loves everybody. Jesus hates things. You know that? The Bible says Jesus hates certain things. Jesus himself tells them he hated, quote, the work of the Nicolaitans in verse 6. He praises them for hating what he hated. But then he has something to say about their love as well after it. You could say in all those things in verses 2 to 3 and also verse 6, in some ways they were a model church. If you would have looked at them from Scripture, you would have thought, wow, they've got all their ducks in a row. That's This is the model church, and yet this is not the one that is without Rebuke. As much of an encouragement as those things must have been to that church, he also has a word of rebuke or correction for them. Look at verse 4. He says, very short and to the point, but I have this against you. I'm sure their ears must have perked up when he says that. I, I have this against you, what? That you have abandoned or left the love you had at first. I always think of the King James when I read this. You know, you've left your first love is the way they, it puts it in that translation. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You know, despite all the strengths that they, they had going for them, much of which was highly commendable in the sight of Christ himself. I mean, he doesn't disregard all the good things that they had done. They had left or abandoned their first love. What, what does that mean? What love had they abandoned? Was it love for Christ? Was it love for the brethren? Was it love for the lost? Maybe all the above? Love for God and love for one's neighbor and love for one's brother must and always will go together. Remember Jesus in Matthew 22, someone tried to test him about the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, 34 to 40. It says, when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, that they huddled up, right? And one of them, a lawyer, it's always a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Uh, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? I don't know why they thought he wouldn't know what the answer was, but they thought they were going to trick him. Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, sorry, this is the great and first commandment. But he doesn't stop there, does he? The, The greatest commandment is more than one. Because he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He doesn't let them off the hook. You can't just say you love God but hate your brother or your neighbor. And, and where does he get that from? Well, he quotes the Old Testament, but the Ten Commandments. It's a set. You don't get to pick the half you like and disregard the other half. The first four are about your love for God. Right? If you love, if you love God, you'll have no other gods before him. 
right? You won't, you won't commit idolatry, you won't take his name in vain, and you'll remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's how you show, in practical, tangible terms, among other things, your love for God. What about the last six commandments, the second table of the law? It's all about love for neighbor, right? Honor your father and mother, don't commit murder, don't murder your neighbor. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, and don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. The summary of God's moral law, his will for your life, is loving God and loving your neighbor. Likewise, John, the same writer of Revelation, in 1 John four nineteen to 21 says this, We love, why? Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? A liar. Call somebody a liar? That's a harsh word. They say, I love God, but don't love my brother. You are a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I think I think that's, it's all the above. It's love for God, it's love for the brethren, those in the church with us, and it's love for our neighbor. Despite all their good works, their toil, their labors in his name, despite their faithfulness to the truth and right doctrine and their careful rejection of false teaching and heresy and false apostles, the church in Ephesus had a heart problem. Their head was fine. Their hands and feet seemed fine, but they had a heart problem. They had left their first love. James Ramsey says the following. He says, a church, therefore, may be large and prosperous, zealous for truth and order and purity, laboring patiently and successfully for the name of Christ. And yet there may be, unseen by human eyes and unsuspected even by herself, a secret defect that silently but, uh, silently but surely threatens her very existence. No external zeal can compensate for declining love. What was the solution? In verse 5, Jesus tells them, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. He tells them what to do. You know, when, when somebody tells you you've left your first love, if you have any heart at all, what do you do? What do you want, what do you want to know? Okay, what do I do about it? What do I do about it? What does he say in verse 5? Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. What's the first thing they were told to do? What's the first thing we're told to do? Remember, they were to think back to the former days, maybe even the time back when they had first heard the gospel and believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. How much did they love Christ back then? When they first heard the words of life and came to believe in Christ, how much did they love his word, delighting in it and meditating upon it day and night, even as David talks about in Psalm 1? How much did they then love the brethren, the family in Christ? How much did they then love the lost and seek to bring the gospel of Christ to their neighbors? Can you relate to that? Maybe you can. I know that I have. I, I, I am able to relate to that in many ways. Has your love for Christ grown cold? Has your delight in his word faded? Has your sincere love for your brothers and sisters in Christ grown cold as well? How about our love for the lost? Our concern for getting the gospel out to those who are dying without Christ and still in their sins. It's easy to let that grow cold. 
and to let that become secondary. You know, think of, of an example of this. Think about what happens and what can happen in our marriages. The same kind of thing can happen then. You know, what, what do we counsel each other to do in that case? Not always official counseling, you know, sitting in the office behind the desk, across. When you just talk to somebody, what do you tell them to do? Well, probably the first thing you tell them to do is to remember. Now think back, think back to your wedding day. Think about the excitement and the joy that attended that great day. Think back to the love that you had for each other that abounded in those days, not just the honeymoon, but beyond that as well. You know, think about why you married the person in the first place. That, that helps to think back and to remember. What's the next thing you might tell each other to do? You might not use this word, but you might use what this word means. Not just remember, but repent. What does repent mean? I remember rightly, Pastor Gary actually defined it for us last week or the week, a couple weeks ago. It really, in, in Hebrew, it means just to turn. You're going this way? Stop. Do a U-turn. Go the other way. It means to turn from sin and turn back to God. We tell each other to repent, to do the former things that we used to do back when our love was burning brightly. You know, buy your wife flowers just just because. Shower each other with affection and kindness. Put each other first and serve one another. You know, love is not just emotion. Nothing wrong with emotion, right? But you you do the things. You, re, you think back, you remember, and you repent. You do the things. And probably most cases, the, the feelings will follow those things. Those things, rep, remembering and repenting, are kind of the answer when the so-called, you know, the, the, you ever hear the phrase, you know, the magic is gone kind of thing. Well, what's the solution? The solution isn't magic. The solution is remembering and repenting. Honeymoons are not meant to last forever, uh, but the love of husband and wife is intended to last a lifetime. In the same way, we in the church must remember and repent if we have left our first love for Christ and for our brethren and for the lost. That goes for us as individuals first, and it also holds true collectively as a church for every church. It isn't that precisely the point of Christ's words here in our text in this letter to the church at Ephesus. Well, there's also a word from Christ, a word of warning to the church in our text. In verse 5, it's kind of hard to, to think about, but in verse 5 he says, if not, in other words, if you don't remember and repent and do the first works that you used to do, if not, what does he say? I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He's going to pluck the lampstand right away from them. Now, remember back in verse 20 of chapter 1, Jesus told us, what did he say the lampstands represented? The churches. The seven lampstands, the seven golden lampstands, are the seven churches. And the, the seven stars were the seven angels of the seven churches. What does it mean for the Lord to remove a church's lampstand from its place? It means that a church ceases to be a true church altogether. They may still exist, they may still have a building, they may still have pastors and elders and deacons and a budget and all kinds of things, but they'll be a church in name only. He will not be walking among them at that point. He will not be holding their their star, their, their messenger, their ministers and their ministries in his hand. That's not where you want to be. You want to be, where is it safest as a church? You want to be where Christ is walking. And how do you tell if how do you know if Christ is walking among you? The lack of problems, lack of affliction, lack of of, of uh, 
persecution? No. All these churches dealt with all those things, and yet what does Christ remind them of? He's walking among them. You don't tell if Christ is walking among you by the lack of, of problems. You tell if Christ is walking among you by his promise and, and by your sticking to the truth of the gospel as a, as a church. Now, believers, you and I, believers cannot lose your salvation. That's not what this text is talking about at all. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 38 and 39. That's not what Jesus is, is addressing here. He's talking about the vitality and witness of a church. That can, and sometimes is, lost. That can be lost. And it can be lost in such a way and to such a degree that a church ceases to be a true church in any meaningful sense altogether. Think about that. Has that not happened countless times throughout history, the history of the church? Did this very thing not even happen to the church at Ephesus? Where is it now? Is the church of Ephesus still kicking? It's in modern-day Turkey is where Ephesus was. They're gone. That church is, there might be some individual Christians there, but that church that that letter was written to is long gone from the stage of history. How many churches, even entire denominations, have apostatized and left the church altogether? Left the faith, rather, altogether. That sad reality has happened far too many times down through the centuries and still happens today. Maybe you've noticed it firsthand. Maybe you can think of a church a denomination used to be a part of that used to be contending for the faith and serving Christ in its generation, and then it turned away from the gospel and is a shell of its former self. And so a church can have a lot going for it. She can have massive budgets, secure financial resources, be set for decades to come in that regard, have beautiful facilities, have large attendance, and yet be like a dead tree rotting from the inside out. That you don't notice, you know, you have a dead, you ever have a dead tree? We've had one fall over in our backyard. Outwardly, it looks fine. And then you, you notice the rot on the inside. The thing is, is dead. And it, it's like a, it's like a, a, you know, a flower. You cut a flower and put it in a vase or, you know, once you cut the root, it might look good for a while, but it's on the way to being dead. It's on the way to the trash can at some point. She can become, any church can, a church in name only and one among whom the risen and ascended Christ is no longer walking, and whose ministers and ministries he no longer holds in his right hand. We want to be a church where Christ walks among our lampstand. We want to be a church that Christ is holding our ministries in his hand, which means he's protecting it and he's using it, using us for his glory. And these words of Christ were not just intended for that church in Ephesus in John's day. Uh, and how do we know that? What does he say in verse 7? He who has an ear... We all have two ears. Most of, most of ours work. Mine, maybe not as good sometimes. But he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's, it's, it's hello. Is this thing working? He's saying this is for us, whoever reads this letter. The letters are, are addressed to the churches, plural. These words were inspired by the Holy Spirit himself and were intended for your benefit and mine, for our edification in the church of in all times and in all places. And that means that the words in Christ's letter to the church in Ephesus and in the other letters as well, they're intended for us as well. We are to take these words to heart as individual believers and as a church. May you and I have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church here in this text and the other 
letters as well. May, may we examine ourselves both as individual believers and as a church. If we have left our first love, may the Lord himself revive us, that we too might remember and repent and rekindle our love for Christ, his word, and his people. And may, may you and I take to, work, take to heart the hope of the promise that he extends to us in verse 7. That, that promise in verse 7 is for you and me. And what does he say there? To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of, life, of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a picture of, of the early chapters of Genesis, before the fall, where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden in the day. He said, you can eat of the tree of life. He's talking about heaven, being with the Lord forever in heaven. And how do you conquer? It's, that's good to know, right? To the one who conquers, well, how do, I, how do we do that? What does it look like? Did Ephesus feel like they were conquering much? What does the Bible say is our victory? Faith, our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. The, the power of the gospel, our faithfulness to the gospel. And in the context, context of this letter, uh, what's the key as a church and as Christians for us to conquer? Our first love. Loving Christ, his word, his people, and the lost. May that be true of us that we might uh, eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise. Of God, let's pray. Lord, we we come to you this morning, and we 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 read this letter, and we can't help but but look in the mirror and wonder uh, what parts of this letter and the other letters uh, applies uh, to our church, to us as individuals as well. We pray that you would, uh, as the psalmist says, search search us, O God, and know our heart. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is uh, any any hurtful or wicked way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting, Lord. That you would. Help us in all these things. We pray that you would, uh, we thank you that you walk among your lampstands, that you hold uh, the stars, the seven stars in your right hand, that you are with us to protect us, to use us, to build your church in such a way that the gates of hell shall never shall never overcome it or prevail against it, Lord. We know that you you have even purchased the church of God with your own blood, and we pray that you would be with this church and our sister churches here and elsewhere, that you would work in us, that which is pleasing in your sight. Make us a church that remembers, repents, rekindles our first love. Give us grace to be a church that no matter what things we do or don't have outwardly, that we might have a strong love for you, for your gospel, for each other, and for the, for the, the lost that are among us, that we might be useful to you and serve you in our generation, that we might, uh, in the most important sense of, that your word talks about, that we might conquer in Christ and, and share in the joy of all those things that you promise. You Make us useful to you and glorify your name in us, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.